Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFURL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest today is Andras Tatsifra, a political analyst and a fellow with the Eurasia Program at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. He's a regular contributor to FPRI's Bear Market Brief and the author of his own blog, No Yardstick. Thanks for joining me today, Andras. Thank you for having me. All right. It's great to have you on the show again. Um, now, clearly, the country that is uh, by far the most affected by Russia's war against Ukraine is Ukraine. Russia is killing and wounding civilians every day, committing rights abuses, imprisoning people, occupying large swaths of territory in an independent foreign country. Uh, the war that Moscow provoked in the Donbass in, in eastern Ukraine started in 2014. And now it's been almost 17 months uh, since Russia launched the full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. But obviously the decision to, uh, to launch this invasion um, has had and will continue to have a massive effect, uh, many effects on Russia itself. Tens of thousands of Russian soldiers have been killed. Uh, the domestic crackdown on, on any form of dissent, uh, particularly anti-war dissent, has grown even more intense. Um, and there are major effects on the economy, uh, the sanctions, not to mention the damage to Russia's international standing. I believe today uh, is the ninth anniversary of the shooting down of MH17, the... Um, Malaysia Airlines passenger jet that was shot down by a Russian uh, missile that was brought into Ukraine uh, and then was returned to the system that, that fired the missile was then returned to Russia. Uh, that killed all 298 people on board that passenger plane in 2014. Um, so, you know, that's just to to uh, talk a little bit about the, the damage to Russia's international standing from what it's done. Uh, what I want to ask you about, Andras, is I guess the effects on politics and governance and planning in Russia. Earlier this year, uh, you wrote a report for the Foreign Policy Research Institute titled The War as an Accelerator. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that the war has accelerated uh, some of the problems that I guess were caused by, by the Kremlin, by the Russian state in the first place, or at least um, have been exacerbated by, by policy. Now, one of the lines uh, in your report that struck me was this, the invasion completely eliminated long-term policy planning and subordinated policymaking to war aims. Now, completely eliminated long-term policy planning. Uh, that's a quote. That's quite a statement. Uh, and I imagine um, the situation has been exacerbated by the fact that the invasion has not gone at all um, as President Vladimir Putin expected it to. By all accounts, he expected to, to subjugate Ukraine within days or, or at most weeks. Uh, since this did not happen, and the war is still raging almost a year and a half later, it sounds like maybe Putin and the Kremlin are just winging it. Uh, anyway, Andras, um, I wonder if you could elaborate a bit on how Russia's invasion of Ukraine 
has affected policy planning and what are, what some of the consequences might be? Yeah, so uh, it, it's exactly what you said is what I meant with uh, the war being an accelerator. So if I were to give you a very short uh, summary of what the report is saying is that the war, war changed everything. It's, it's nothing changed in Russia, so the war changed everything in the sense that it accelerated existing problems that um, prior to the uh, 2023 invasion, because obviously when we speak about the war, the war started in 2014. So prior to the 2023 invasion seemed to be uh, potentially manageable. What we were seeing uh, prior to 2022 is a personalist autocracy in Russia with a short-term time horizon, planning horizon, uh, which was 2024, the year when uh, Putin's uh, current presidential term runs out, trying to sort of uh, uh, make peace between the conflicting, the often conflicting uh, short-termism of its, uh, sort of, the, the, the propelled by its autocratic uh, instinct and goals, and the uh, aim to make the system uh, built by uh, Vladimir Putin and uh, his uh, uh, let's say, team, a fairly diverse team of technocrats, securocrats, kleptocrats, uh, uh, and what have you, over the past 20 years, um, maybe run itself a little better. Now, one of the uh, dilemmas that, uh, that, that were visible uh, in 2021, early 2022, was whether this sort of... Um, uh, this will be resolved, this contradiction will be resolved in the form of a uh, uh, grand development project built on the sort of the, the post-pandemic recovery or something else. And of course, uh, the, now we know the answer, the answer was something else, uh, this disastrous invasion in, in 2022, which uh, basically rendered all prior plans uh, very difficult to maintain. And when I say that the war has completely eliminated short-term policy planning, uh, sorry, long-term policy planning, what I mean is that uh, the, it turbocharged this uh, sort of short-termism that uh, was there in the system, that was conflicting with making long-term policies that pay out uh, in time horizons that are, uh, that, that are too much in the future for a personalist autocracy, uh, even prior to 2022, but now, it, due to the uncertainties that the war, uh, the horizon of the war, um, the shifting horizon of the war and the shifting costs that the war has uh, brought to Russia uh, mean, it, 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 it has become almost impossible to even uh, pretend that these plans are still there, that they are still being uh, seriously analyzed and seriously implemented. So. One thing that we have seen is, uh, obviously on the federal level, uh, is the budget for the war uh, allocations for war purposes, military, um, military uh, expenses in the federal budget ballooning, not just over the past, not just over 2022, but especially also, and I would say especially in 2023, 
uh, we have a ballooning federal uh, deficit. Um, and this has uh, led to cuts in other expenses, primarily expenses on, uh, on, on um, state-driven investment projects, which uh, due, to, due to a drying up of private investment uh, now constitute the backbone of, uh, of, of uh, the development projects that Russia now has to sort of accelerate due to uh, the drying up of its uh, export markets, its traditional export markets in Western Europe, due to its sort of forced pivot to the uh, to the east. And the gist of the report was the uh, was was describing uh, on the example of, uh, of 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 the, the the policy planning that that has taken place uh, over the past uh, year year and a half uh, in the Russian government how. Uh, this is really just uh, technocrats able as they might be uh, managing a crisis but not really planning, not really taking part in uh, making the strategic decisions that would um, uh, s sort of change the course that Russia is on. So this is what we see now is mostly crisis management, it's not really uh, Russia trying to find its way out of this crisis. What happened to the time horizons is that um, for a long time, the um, even after even months after the uh, the the 2022 invasion started and and uh, if and and when it became obvious that it was not going according to plans, there was still a sense in Russia that uh, eventually, uh, before the country sort of incurs uh, unavoidable costs, unavoidable large costs uh, due to its decoupling from the, uh, from the, from the global economy, or the, uh, the part, uh, not the complete global economy, of course, but the global economy toward, the part of the global economy towards which uh, Russia's, uh, Russia's economy itself had been oriented traditionally, that be before this happens, uh, Ukraine will crumble, or the West support behind Ukraine will crumble. And you only need to wait for just a little bit more, and everything will be back to business as usual, or if not business as usual, but at least better than, uh, than, than currently. So the, the, the whole uh, policy making in 2022, in most of 2022, was built on this uh, sort of gamble on the beliefs of of of, of the um, political, uh, the, the high political elite and perhaps the security elite, that the war was an, an was inevitable and that victory was just around the corner. Now, as long as you know enough people accept that these assumptions these assumptions are are are, are true. Um, the situation is manageable. It's not good, but it's manageable because uh, people will sort of buy in. Uh, the problem starts when uh, when these costs become started becoming uh, unavoidable. When exporters at the end of the year uh, in several uh, industries that were typically Europe-oriented, metallurgy, timber, uh, obviously the gas industry, which was not sanctioned, but which uh, sort of Russia itself 
uh, turned off most of it towards Europe, phased of uh, a potentially irredeemable loss of its export markets. When it became obvious that capacities uh, in the eastern direction were overloaded and it would have to be uh, scaled up very quickly or, had, or, or alternatives had, would, would have to be found. And uh, the, the, the cost, the short-term cost of this uh, pivot become, became obvious. And we are still in this phase uh, as of uh, mid-2023. So, um, what did, the, what did the Russian government do that, that sort of, uh, to me, epitomized this uh, lack of uh, or abandonment of, uh, of uh, long-term policy planning? Well, one of the, uh, I think the most blatant examples of this was uh, the, the so-called um, uh, war tax, as it is uh, known in Russian political parlance, uh, which is a tax on extra profits. Uh, technically, that's the name. Uh, which uh, uh, we now know the story from uh, various journalistic reporting that was just proposed to the uh, the idea was proposed or imposed upon um, the Russian uh, business elite. They the, the government needed 300 billion uh, rubles, and the business elite was told to come up with this kind of money, or how the or how uh, the Russian government revamped uh, uh, the taxation of uh, oil exports uh, as, as a as a response to the uh, to the G7 oil embargo. Uh, how they sort of abandoned the benchmark price uh, that uh, they used to calculate taxes before, and just uh, started using an arbitrary rising scale. Of prices to which they sort of uh, that, 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 that uh, um, based on which they calculated the taxes for the budget over the past months, and it didn't really work out either because uh, the uh, it, federal budget's incomes from energy sales uh, collapsed nonetheless, or were at least significantly lower. Um, there were there, there are all these like very loud debates. Uh, between uh, ver uh, between various industries that uh, would are trying to, to sort of use these limited export uh, transit capacities in the eastern direction, uh, there are loud debates about who will finance uh, the expansion of eastern railway lines, for instance, or the electrification of the existing lines. Um, which uh, state companies like uh, Russian Railways does not have the uh, does not quite have the money to, uh, uh, to 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 perform according to plan or according to these now accelerated plans. Uh, whether tariffs will need to be raised. So this is, I, I could come up with five other examples um, from you know fisheries to 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 car making, which. Uh, uh, which, which was probably one of the industries most um, impacted by the sanctions in the early stage. But you get the point. Basically, this is a very, very messy crisis management. Uh, the system that Russia is governed in was not designed, or at least uh, it hasn't reached the stage of evolution uh, that uh, is able to handle so, much, so many conflicting crises, uh, when, especially when... Uh, one kind of spending, military spending and the spending of domestic security is so prioritized. 
we hear about um, just a couple of weeks ago, the finance minister came up with, uh, reportedly came up with plans to sequester 10% of the so-called non-protected uh, items of the federal budget in 2024. That's, you know, that, that means that uh, money for these, um, uh, for these investments, for these grand investment projects will be further limited at a time when they are very needed and they are not, uh, there are no alternatives uh, on the horizon that we can see that would uh, sort of fill this gap. Uh, we see how uh, the Russian government is really trying to lure, for instance, Chinese investment, Chinese money into some of these projects. But China has been very selective. Uh, it, it is not really investing in projects that the uh, Russian government would like them to. or It, it, it hasn't uh, agreed with Russia, for instance, on the second uh, power of Siberia uh, gas pipeline. But also, uh, I can't, like, apart from Chinese, uh, apart from Chinese uh, car makers or uh, uh, taking over parts of the, uh, the Russian, of the ailing Russian, uh, Russian car industry over the past year, and apart from talks about certain railways that would uh, basically transport uh, raw material from, from Russia to China over a certain like, period of time in the future, not in the next one or two years, but in a, in a longer time horizon, there hasn't really been anything worth mentioning in this field. So it is, it, we are, Russia, is, Russia is still in the situation where uh, the, the economy is working. It is uh, due to the enormous amounts of money that have been poured into uh, industries connected to, or the military spending and by extension, industries connected to the military spending can produce numbers that suggest that the economy is okay, uh, but it's really not okay, and it has it does not have the um, necessary sort of uh, policy planning institutions uh, that would be needed to uh, significantly change uh, the situation that uh, the economy and key industries are facing. All right. Thanks very much, Andash. Um, uh, I like the phrase that you that you uh, spoke. Uh, I think bureaucrats, technocrats, and kleptocrats, uh, and some great examples there of um, I guess the way the government is trying to trying to get money uh, for the war, um, including I believe you mentioned sort of raising. Uh, oil export taxes in an arbitrary fashion, but that but that didn't didn't work anyway. Um, so thanks very much for that. My second question is related to the first. Um, in the same report uh, for FBRI, you also wrote that quote: "These problems are causing frictions and elevating domestic political risks for the Kremlin." Unquote. So I'd be grateful if you could talk about these frictions and these risks and, and a somewhat specific uh, related question. Has the mutiny late last month uh, by Yevgeny Prigozhin and his uh, Wagner forces had additional effects as it kind of exacerbated the existing risks of the Kremlin? I see you uh, start mentioning the probably the most obvious uh, uh, 
uh, risk that we have seen over the past months, so I can't mention that, the mutiny. But of course, that is that, that I think uh, signaled the, uh, uh, the one of the problems, one of the major problems that the Kremlin has uh, now has on its hands uh, with how the invasion is going. It's like I think to me, you know, uh, when it um, uh, when when the mutiny started in uh, late June, June twenty fourth, uh, as I was. Uh, Following, as we all did, I think, uh, with astonishment, the news of uh, of um, Prigozhin's uh, sort of Wagner column going first to Rostov and then Voronezh and then uh, all the way almost to the outskirts of Moscow, uh, what um, really stood out to me was how uh, long everyone decided that this was someone else's problem and they did not have to deal with it or so it seemed at least from the uh from the sidelines and um uh, i think like, it didn't this didn't surprise me uh because this i believe is characteristic for the broader governance system uh in this sort of very top-down responsibility structure that uh, that that has been uh so that has crystallized in Russia over the past years. So, well, for instance, one of the, um, uh, if, if, if I can draw a parallel here, um, one of the things that we have seen over the past um, year, year and a half, is the emergence again, yet again, of this very peculiar uh, Russian crisis management system, which we had seen already during the pandemic, that, um, decisions are outsourced uh, or at least not decisions but political responsibility for decisions are outsourced to governors uh, in the uh, in, in the pandemic this was uh, lockdowns right like if you remember governors were uh, uh, were given the power to order lockdowns to sort of uh, themselves to ensure that the economy uh, was running and that, that people did not take to the streets in uh, dissatisfaction uh, and that uh, uh, the local health care system didn't collapse so they had to sort of juggle these priorities but what they spent was basically like in, in, in practice uh, governors still were looking for cues from either the Kremlin or from uh, bigger regions like Moscow, which you know itself uh, sort of played a massive role in policy making or in signaling policy making during the pandemic on what to do. What basically they have to do is to understand local sensitivities and sort of not to push too hard when they couldn't, but otherwise just follow these cues and take responsibility for what was essentially decided in the center. And um, uh, then we, we, we saw the same during the vaccination campaign of 2021. And uh, in the war, the Kremlin tried to do a, a remarkably similar system, even with you know, similar institutions to coordinate regions uh, in, um, uh, by, by allowing, uh, by, by first asking um, regions to sort of oversee military mobilization, which was a very uh, unpopular uh, policy back in September 2022, and then in October, when Putin issued decrees on the, these various stages of uh, what is de facto military law um, uh, or martial law, uh, they were um, uh, regions 
were told who, who fell under these decrees to sort of set up uh, operational headquarters to oversee uh, various things in their uh, uh, in their territory, including that the military's needs were, were met. And uh, these operational headquarters were essentially uh, institutions that were dominated as much by, uh, by the local security elite as by the governors, and, uh, and, and they were again looking for cues from the center. They were, uh, a lot of them, for instance, took decisions to ban drones, even uh, regions that absolutely faced no, no uh, drone attacks um, over the past months. And similar other uh, uh, took similar other decisions that that sort of happened in succession. When one took them, and one big division took them, then uh, suddenly a lot of others did. And uh, I think when we we look at the Wagner mutiny, what we saw was that uh, for a very long time um, regions, along with the 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 sort of the security. Uh, establishment in the regions didn't really do anything, and regions started to, or regional leaders started to signal uh, loyalty to the Kremlin with, like, sometimes using very muted language. Even then, when uh, apparently, at, at least this is what we, uh, we since we have uh, we have find we we have read reports about when they um, when when they got a phone call from the center. Uh, from the federal center. Now, I don't know whether this is, you know, this is what exactly what happened. But what I do know is that uh, uh, for a very for hours, nothing happened, and then uh, regions started to sort of uh, put out uh, uh, very similar-looking uh, messages that signal loyalty. And then after the mutiny, some regions started signaling their loyalty even more than that. Like where we have the, uh, the 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 governor of the Kursk region who said that, well. Uh, we we would have dealt with these these, these mutineers uh, if if they had been in our region. Well, you know that's an easy thing to say after uh, the mutiny had been essentially, if not put down, but at least repelled, uh, or uh, their banners went up in in, in the Rostov region uh, that 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 uh, signaled loyalty to the federal center. So uh, I believe this was uh, this this in a way signaled how. Um, uh, the, the the federal government, uh, uh, how regions uh, are uh, trying to sort of curry favor from the federal government, or how they are how they are administered, what uh, to what extent the the regional uh, govern governments are uh, independent or autonomous administrators of their regions, not very much. Uh, but. If we don't talk about the, the Wagner mutiny for a moment, what I see as a risk, as an elevated risk, is that regions are, regional governments are or have been asked to do a lot of things. Uh, they are um, overseeing uh, military mobilization, or were overseeing military mobilization, in many cases covert mobilization to this day. Uh, they need to make sure that their local economies uh, are surviving, that they are, that, that, you know, there are enough jobs, that there are enough, uh, uh, there are, there are uh, uh, products in the stores, for instance, or, or uh, there is no uh, sudden uh, breakdown 
of uh, of labor relations in in, in in a big industrial city, for instance. They are also they have also been asked, especially in regions that are on the way uh, along this uh, these new uh, or this this not new but these expanding export routes uh, towards Asia to sort of forecast more money to uh, on uh, infrastructure projects. One of the latest uh, uh, initiatives is the tax break that would basically take money away from regions uh, by giving tax breaks to companies. Uh, uh, company income taxes are one of the main sources of regional budgets. Uh, so would give Tax, tax breaks to companies that invest in uh, priorities set by the federal government. So again, like uh, regional budgets um, are that 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 were not really um, affected negatively, at least in the first half of 2022. More more so in the second half, but they had enough reserves. Uh, we'll have to uh, fork out more money on these, or we'll be expected to in, in 2023. And at the same time, they have to, you know, juggle all these uh, often conflicting priorities. The one, uh, obviously, the one um, clear priority is the war. And then, at the same time, we face an, uh, an, an immutability of regional leadership. The Kremlin has uh, uh, taken a very care uh, careful approach to this over the past year, year and a half. There were very few dismissals in the regions. Um, Probably uh, in order to reduce risks, but this is, but 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 at the same time they've been trying to sort of uh, uh, end certain power sharing deals with, uh, with 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 regional elites in 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 in, in some regions, for instance in Novosibirsk, which had a kind of power sharing deal with uh, between uh, the United Russia governor and the uh, uh, local communist party that gave the. Um, Head of, uh, of 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 Novosibirsk, the regional capital, uh, and that was scrapped uh, by United Russia, uh, essentially scrapping direct direct mayoral elections. So, and this is just one example. There are several other such little power sharing deals that have been pushed back over the past year. Again, probably also to reduce risks in the regions. So, when you when you are trying to sort of um, uh, push back against these uh, power sharing deals when you are trying to minimize risks by saying everyone stay put, everyone uh, stay put and stay, stay quiet. Uh, I think inevitably uh, the risks of, of, and perhaps counterintuitively from an authoritarian's point of view, the risks of something happening, something small happening that balloons into something bigger grow because uh, there is less money uh, that has to be spent on, on significantly more priorities. There are sort of these overstretched uh, bureaucracies in the regions that don't really have power. Uh, they, they, they get distracted or they just don't, they just don't uh, dare to act in, uh, in a case where they should be acting, where an autonomous bottom-up uh, bureaucracy would be acting. Um, there is the uh, the lack of money that the money that that is basically being reallocated from these uh, development projects, national projects that uh, uh, you know some that will be missing from some people's purses. Um, so there are just an enormous amount of risk factors, uh, as far as I can see, that potentially can balloon to something bigger. Now. 
it, it, this can take the this can take the um, uh, the form of uh, regional elites organizing, sort of co-opting some kind of uh, uh, local uh, some kind of local cause uh, to put pressure on the government, uh, to the federal government, to send more money. There are you know, the contours of this are emerging in some regions. So, for instance, around direct mayoral elections, but also there have been other regions that have been signaling to the Kremlin over the past months that, hey, we don't have enough money. Uh, hey, the, 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 the sort of the tax uh, calculation system that uh, prioritizes the um, uh, liquidity of the federal budget, perhaps that uh, puts regions at a worse place and it need to be changed or repealed. This is a new system that was uh, put in place at the beginning of this year. Uh, are these comparable to uh, the big sort of regional, uh, uh, almost like, like the, the parade of sovereignties, as, they were, as, as it was called at the, in the beginning of the 1990s? No, I don't think so. Uh, they are still, at this point, they are still a far cry from that. But they take place in a, so, I mean, from a many, uh, uh, from, from many uh, aspects, uh, significantly more pessimistic and uh, uncertain time, when uh, it is becoming increasingly, uh, increasingly uncertain that uh, Russia is going to emerge from this conflict uh, stronger and uh, or that or that the war will be over with a uh, with an outcome that uh, is favorable or at least not disastrous for Russia in the near term. So I think this changes the conversation a little bit. And um, while I wouldn't be able to point at one specific issue and tell you this this is going to bring down Putin's regime or this is going to cause big problems, there are so many of these potential issues that I think. Uh, that itself is worth uh, acknowledging, as uh, and it's, and that that is exactly one of the one of the main uh, purposes of sanctions. Uh, as uh, uh, my uh, one of my uh, Russia analyst colleagues, Yanis Kluge from SWP in Berlin, don't want to steal uh, his uh, his metaphor, but but I just want to mention it because I liked it so much. Said uh, sanctions in this case are a bit like uh, shaking a tree and you don't see the tree, you don't, you don't see what's inside the tree, but something will fall. And that's exactly, I think, what is happening or what will be happening, what we'll, be, what we'll see in the next couple of months. Well, thanks very much, Anders. That's, that's fascinating. Uh, it's a great detail there. Um, I wonder, you, you mentioned, um, this is just sort of a comment, you mentioned that this is all taking place in a time of, of great uncertainty, you know, in Russia and including about whether the uh, war will, will, you know, will leave Russia better off or, or perhaps much worse off. And I wonder whether the narrative that Putin has been really hitting hard lately um, actually exacerbates that. I'm talking about the narrative of, you know, the West is, is essentially out to destroy Russia. Um, you know, if you, if you're told that, and then you can also perhaps see that Russia's uh, not winning the war, uh, I, I, would, I would think that that might add to your concerns as opposed to um, alleviating them. But um, 
we're, we're getting short on time, but uh, I'd like to ask, uh, I'm sorry, I'd like to take a few questions if, uh, if there are any. Um, so, when, uh, so we'll just give it a few moments to see if, see if anyone has questions. Uh, so far, none. I'm going to ask one myself. Uh, gosh, um, just uh, it's sort of again about Prigozhin, but also um, also the uh, the election. Now there, are, I guess there are a few elections in September, but then of course, um, presidential election should be held in March 2024. Um, and I just saw an article by from Bloomberg today uh, that was talking about how the essentially it seemed like it was talking about how the costs that that the, the insecurity or the feeling of the lack of security in the Kremlin, you know, due to the uh, the mutiny, is going to cause you know, will re will require uh, extra expenditures. Um, uh, and particularly, you know, ahead of ahead of the election, when when Putin is concerned about getting, uh, you know, about uh, having the election look look good and presumably being reelected, though though he hasn't um, announced whether he's he's running. I think it's widely seen that he will. Um, so, and I think they gave a figure like I don't want to pin you down and trying to trying to you know guess numbers or, or predict numbers, but I think the figure was something like. Would add five percent to, you know, to to budget uh, expenditures. I mean, do you see do you see anything like that happening, kind of as a direct result of of the of the mutiny? Uh, just the, the idea of extra security, uh, other concerns, adding to to the what what I think you described as, you know, kind of competing uh, competing, uh, I guess, programs or motives for for spending money. Yeah, so, uh, but what, uh, like, how this, how a system like this manages elections, um, be it, well, obviously, first and foremost, presidential elections, which is the most important, but also other, other elections. We're talking about uh, elections in several Russian regions uh, uh, in September this year, uh, is always a mix of coercion and goodies, or, or like, let's say more subtle pressure. But also when I say more, when I, when I use the expression more subtle pressure, I, I, I mean pay, payouts to the right people. And one, is, one of the things that has been actually baffling to me is how, uh, the, uh, how various officials over the past weeks have been pushing for a very quick uh, reduction of uh, budgetary uh, expenses for over as soon as the next year. You know, some th th there are some who said that we are, we only need to sequester part of the budget in 2025. Others said that uh, already 2024 uh, will be a, a sort of a lean year, and that's not something that you hear very often before an election year. And that would suggest to me that uh, the thinking in the Kremlin is that uh, that that instead of uh, sort of these positive uh, incentives uh, or positive pressure 
um, positive nudge to the population or to the key actors who will uh, eventually bring enough people, the right people, to the right polls. Uh, be they uh, be they public officials or company leaders. So instead of this kind of so-called positive nudges, they are going to rely significantly more on other sort of more sinister um, tools to ensure that they get the results that they want. And yes, one of this is obviously coercion and uh, and 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 uh, ramping up security. Uh, uh, expenditures would be just a natural reaction of a paranoid and increasingly paranoid uh, autocracy at this point after a mutiny. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all about that. But I think the whole system is sort of lurching uh, towards uh, the security angle of this uh, uh, sort of balance uh, over the, the, the that we have seen over the past years. One of the one of the things that uh, the Kremlin is planning to roll out, for instance, you know, over the uh, course of uh, the September elections and also uh, in 2024 is the so-called on, uh, online, well, what, what, is, what is referred to colloquially as online voting, it's uh, like a distance, the electronic voting is the official name, uh, which uh, we have seen uh, of which we have seen the effects in Moscow, for instance, in the 2021 Duma election, when uh, electronic voting was used, or electronic voting uh, results sort of overturned what seemed to be uh, stable opposition wins in the capital. And the way it happened was so opaque, but also somehow so difficult to analyze and dissect and uh, and, and uh, show to the population how uh, wh wh whether it was uh, whether it was just an anomaly or or or, or what many suspected and then some some uh, analyses actually proved was uh, closer to falsification uh, that ultimately it did not really change much. So I believe uh, we are going to see more of uh, such coercion as well, and this perhaps, the, the, the ability to extend um, uh, these uh, sort of, this, this kind of electoral engineering on, on more regions, be it uh, this online voting or be it the, uh, the multi-day voting that they introduced during the uh, pandemic, uh, sort of gives the impression to political technologists in the Kremlin that, uh, that, that uh, this coupled with the sort of uh, tighter security or more crackdown um, on the ground uh, can do the trick that they in the past had to use positive incentives or positive nudges for. Uh, whether that's going to be the case, we don't know. I think from this perspective, uh, the 2023 September regional elections will be very educational because uh, unlike in 2022, in 2023, we will actually see some uh, elections in the regions that, are, that have a more pluralistic politics, even today, even now. Um, so there are a couple of... Uh, um, interesting electoral campaign shaping up, and in, for instance, the uh, far right, uh, for the far, uh, the far 
Eastern Maritime Territory and also in Caucasia, um, but elsewhere too. Uh, so it will be educational for us. It will probably also be uh, uh, educational for the Kremlin. Uh, and I would probably start talking about what is going to happen or what is likely to happen in 2024 after these elections in September. Yeah, thanks, Andras. Yeah, that, that'll be quite interesting to watch those elections. And I guess they're also going to be, uh, you know, and you mentioned some, some regions where, where it could be particularly, particularly kind of uh, telling. Um, and I guess they're also holding, they're also going to hold elections in, in the parts of Ukraine that, that Russia occupies. So that's yes, presumably much of the, I mean, rightly, much of the focus will be on that. Um, you know, these kind of sham elections in, the, in those regions. Um, all right, uh, just uh, thanks very much for that additional uh, analysis. Um, just uh, see if there's, if any questions have come in. And uh, if not, I do not see any for now, so... Um, Just one second. Okay, uh, we do have a question from uh, Martin Zeilig. Um, so we can. Martin, if you can, uh, so I'm not sure whether you've requested uh, speaker privilege, but you can go ahead. Martin, please go ahead. So I see you, your, your mic is off right now, Martin, if you want to ask. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, uh, uh, sorry about that, Steve. I, Martin Zielig in uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Uh, I, I tuned in late, so I'm not sure if you mentioned this at the uh, out, outset uh, of the show, but I received, uh, just, just as a reminder, um, and of course as a, as a fellow journalist, uh, which we both are, Evan... Um, Gerskovich, uh, there was a, um, a media release from uh, the United Nations um, Human Rights Special Procedures today um, called um, Gershkovich's Arbitrary Detention is an Attack Against Independent Journalism, say UN Experts, and uh, they called for, I'm quoting, the immediate release of Mr. Gershkovich, a journalist who was arbitrarily arrested by the Russian Federal Security Service on 29th March 2023 and has since been held for over 100 days in pre-trial detention at Lifotovo prison in Moscow. Um, if you'll just allow me a, a moment. The arrest and indictment of Mr. Gershkowicz on serious criminal charges which could lead to 20 years in a penal colony is an example of the severe clampdown on freedom of opinion and expression and on independent journalism in Russia since the full-scale invasion of Ukraine 17 months ago, the experts said. Anyways, uh, it goes on, but um, I just wanted to bring that to, uh, to your attention. And, and uh, it also says that, um, uh, and thank you for allowing me this, uh, Steve. The experts noted that Mr. That, uh, Lifortovo District Court in Moscow extended Mr. Gershkovitz's um, detention 
until the 30th of August 2023 in a private hearing held on 23rd of May. His subsequent appeal of the detention measure was rejected. To date, he has only been allowed two consular visits despite numerous requests for access from the U.S. ambassador to Russia. Russian authorities explained their refusal of the response to the, quote, U.S. denial of visas to Russian journalists. And uh, it goes on. So I just wanted to bring that um, once again that um, to, uh, to everybody's attention. And we should... Um, always keep Mr. Gerstovitz in our mind and uh, as a, one more example of uh, the repression uh, in um, the uh, terrorist regime of Russia. So thank you for allowing me to uh, speak and uh, I enjoy your show. All right. Thank you, Martin. Yes. I mean, I mentioned at the beginning, uh, I think, uh, you know, that, that, that this invasion of Ukraine is affecting mostly or Ukraine more than any than any other country, certainly, um, but that the effects on Russia are, are gigantic, uh, including the clampdown, which in this case, uh, you know, as you rightly point out, is is unfortunately affecting, uh, you know, someone who, uh, a journalist, uh, obviously it affects many Russian journalists, but in this case, it's affecting a journalist uh, from, uh, who's not from Russia, um, uh, and and Gershkovich, Evan Gershkovich, I, I believe, is the first uh, journalist to be charged with espionage uh, since the Soviet collapse in Russia. So, um, you know, obviously, a, it's it's a it, it is a big a big part of of this uh, of, of what's happening of the of the I, I mean, clampdown in a way isn't the right word because it suggests some kind it might suggest some kind of wrongdoing. Um, but but you know obviously a big big part of, of what the what the Russian state uh, is, is doing in terms of of, of repression and, and um, cracking down on, on all forms of not not just dissent but any kind of you know but journalism as well attempts and civil society attempts to you know, tell the truth to get information so thanks for that Martin um, and we are out of time uh, so I'm going to wrap it up here. And, um, you know, I'll just, uh, just wanted to say, Andrash, uh, great insights, and thanks very much for joining me this time. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Once again, I've been speaking to Andrash Tatsifra, a political analyst and a fellow with the Eurasia Program of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, or FPRI. He's a regular contributor to the Bear Market Brief and the author of his own blog, no yardstick. And my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. As I mentioned, this conversation will also be published as a podcast, and you can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and other RFERL podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, and other podcast platforms. I'll be back uh, for another installment of The Week Ahead in Russia next Monday, and please keep an eye out for my newsletter, The Week in Russia, which comes out most Fridays. Thanks for listening.